This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Uh, super lucky to be joined by Santiago uh, Andrew, who is the head of uh, digital asset markets at Morgan Stanley, and Amy Oldenburg, uh, the uh, head of emerging markets at Morgan Stanley. So, Amy and Andrew, welcome to Empire. Thanks so Thank much. You. Yeah, excited to have you guys. Uh, let's uh, not start with crypto. Let's start with banking. Uh, we are seeing kind of these. Uh, bit of a banking crisis right now, like the Deutsche CDSs are blown out, life insurers are getting stressed. Uh, it seems like this banking crisis did not end when the Fed came in and backstopped some of the uh, some of the banks like First Republic and um, Silicon Valley Bank. Would just be curious to get both of your takes on like this unfolding banking crisis. Yeah, I can start it off. Uh, you know, I was in San Francisco the week SVB fell apart. So I feel like I had a bit of a front row seat. Uh, got many phone calls uh, from both fund managers that I know across the board and, and founders really trying to understand what's going on. Uh, it's a bit concerning for me, especially because we're so close to the crypto space. So, you know, of course, many individuals saying, you know, this is, you know, uh, the uh, agency is really trying to impact crypto, but it feels broader than that, uh, you know, from so many different founders, regardless of their crypto uh, or just tech startups, or, or even traditional funds. I mean, this is having a pretty major impact. And, and I'm just a little bit nervous of the trust aspect. I think spending 23 years of my career primarily in the emerging market space, there's starting to be parallels uh, that just, um, it, it's not what you would expect from, say, you know, developed market per se. It, you're really trying to find the trust in the system. And there's some of that that like can, that keeps coming out, but but the market is not feeling that trust, right? I mean, I think you're seeing that even with um, how the markets have been playing out on, on some of these banks even this week, where the, it, we haven't been able to really find stability here. And and that's uh, that's a little bit, uh, you know, concerning for me. I, I hope that there's more of it, uh, more stability here than than we're seeing in the market right now. And Andrew, maybe you, I'm sure you have other thoughts on it too. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, right? Being in the crypto market with 24-7 action, news spreading instantaneously on Twitter and Telegram and, you know, exchanges or DeFi projects, like liquidity just evaporating like overnight. Um, it's pretty ironic and you see some things that look not too dissimilar just happening in traditional banking world. And it seems to have happened at times over the weekends. On a Friday, again, there's other banks currently impressed. Like last Friday, obviously, was big story around Credit Suisse's stability and the, and the available liquidity. So it feels like some of the activity we saw happening throughout crypto world in the past couple of years is in a way, some of the same behaviors, at least, uh, are playing out in, in the traditional finance. Yeah. What is your work? So we're recording this at almost 11 a.m. on Friday, March 24th. Um, I just want to almost timestamp it because this stuff moves so quickly. And yeah. uh, right now, Deutsche Bank shares. I, I think Deutsche Bank is talk of the town today. What is, Amy, you mentioned this word concerned. 
what is your like working expectation of how almost like far this banking crisis will go? Yeah, I, I, I think the one thing that we do have to keep uh, in mind, and I think it's really hard for people in the industry, is you can really, to even Andrew's point, because of social media, you can really get sucked into this vortex. And I do think we have to keep resetting ourselves to like, where is a proper baseline and what is our baseline that we're working with? Because I will say, you know, even Friday um, during, you know, SVB and, and uh, 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 Signature and Silvergate, when we were living in that, you were just like in the center of this vortex. And it was hard to see kind of like where, where kind of the bigger like mainstream um, state was. And, and I do feel that there's a bit of we're trying to continue to remove ourselves from the echo chamber. I think that's getting harder and harder. You know, someone had mentioned to me uh, when Enron happened, it was months of chatter um, before things really broke. Global financial crisis, you had weeks of uh, rumors heading before things started to evolve. And even in this situation, it, it was 24 to 48 hours and, and it really gets exacerbated. So, you know, I think we had called, our team had called for increased volatility in markets generally. Like that was even before this happened. We just, we had been expecting higher volatility than we had seen in the past decade to really play out. And now we just have to make sure that we're keeping a baseline in terms of like what's creating that. And um, I, I think that's one of the hardest parts that we're, we're seeing because, you know, every day we keep like jumping around uh, it, it can be very difficult to navigate. So, you know, I, 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 um, I don't think we're, we're not in any sort of extreme situation, but I think we do as investors across the board have to try to keep resetting ourselves and find like a managed calm baseline to be operating off of so we can make uh, rational decisions and not fall into that irrational behavior. Um, some of which I think we're seeing in the market on certain days. How much of this is a like transparency issue? I mean, there was some fund man, like there were some, I guess, short sellers that had identified the issue of Silicon Valley Bank, like even as November of last year. But it's interesting that it just sort of like has percolated and like it's really come under stress over the last like couple of weeks, kind of like a Wall Street bet kind of phenomenon. Um, where else do you see kind of fragility in the system broadly? Um, you know, obviously the focus is now Europe and then it's commercial real estate and then it's something else. And I'm just kind of curious when you talk about it's not as extreme, it's perhaps you're referencing like 2008. There are analogies and there's people that are referencing that. I'm sort of curious to get both of your perspective on on that point because you've been around for such a long time. I'm just curious how we should think about the current situation versus 2008. Andrew, you want to start on that one? Yeah, I mean, so it was pretty early in my career in the 2008 crisis, but I mean, I would say the whole infrastructure in terms of like the support for the banking system and the instruments which have been made available, like since then have just evolved massively, the whole Basel frameworks, et cetera. You saw with the uh, with the merger or let's say takeover of, of UBS being announced, uh, UBS taking over Credit Suisse announced last weekend, they wrote down $17 billion of 81 debts, which is like conditional convertible bond structure. Like those instruments didn't exist in 2008. And those instruments were specifically designed over the years following 2008 for 
situations that we've been seeing recently when you need additional liquidity or additional uh, capital injected into the corp corporate structure. So I think there's been obviously a lot of learning since that crisis. The whole concept of too big to fail is obviously since since Lehman and, and some of the other significant impacts on the market. So we've seen, I think, this time around in the last 15 years, what's, what's changed is there's a, maybe a larger connection between regulations and states to the financial infrastructure and to the financial system. And there's probably a far more caution than letting a specific player that's globally systematic uh, fail because because we've seen what level of impact it had when Lehman went down. I remember spending weeks literally unwinding trades that we had at the time versus Lehman and finding new homes because we were facing clients on Lehman positions. It was complete chaos across the whole trading floor at that time. And I think we've learned a lot since that. So there's a multiple different methods and um, techniques that the regulators have found to divert that sort of crisis from happening again. Yeah. And even if I think back to, so I actually started my career in San Francisco in uh, 99 and 2000. And I thought I was going to stay in the tech world for the rest of my career. I actually didn't expect to, to go into finance, even though I studied finance in school. And living through the summer, oh, sorry, living through the spring of 2000 and coming out of the Y2K kind of tech bubble then, you know, it became quite grim after that point. I mean, so, uh, San Francisco was pretty dark. Everybody had been living on uh, their equity, which had no value to it. I think a little bit different than even what we're seeing in this environment, because at least some of the founders and even in the digital asset space, you have cash on hand. Um, all, everyone was broke back then, uh, with exception of a very few number of people. Uh, but even in the depths of that crisis, you know, really ground uh, through, especially um, I had joined Morgan Stanley in the spring of uh, 2001, and you know, as soon as I'm thinking I have some stability in my life, 9/11 uh, happened that fall. Uh, so we really kind of struggled for a couple of years. But even in that, while the U.S. was feeling pretty bad, uh, the emerging markets started a, a, a very strong run in, in 2003, and that lasted through 2007. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind too: is to constantly be opportunistic in terms of where. Uh, we can find uh, areas to invest in uh, or, or where there will be opportunity, those that don't have legacy infrastructure in terms of financial services and might be able to move uh, on this innovation uh, more actively than, than even what we're seeing in, in the U.S. So the U.S. has had a very strong run. The last decade's been the best decade uh, we've seen for the U.S. And, and from our research, uh, we have never seen the leader of one decade continue to be the leader of the next. Uh, and, and I think one thing we have to, to be accepting of is we may live in the US, uh, things around us may be changing, it may, might not feel bad, it might not feel where the opportunity is, but there's somewhere else in the world where, where they will be opportunity and we have to be able to navigate and take advantage of that. So I do still try to stay quite optimistic and, and look for that opportunity, even as we're seeing these major regime shifts take place. Yeah, I think that's a good pivot almost into crypto, but I want to ask one or two more questions on uh on banks and then uh and and then and then we can do the pivot into crypto. There's just um one thing that Andrew like one little line that you said Andrew is like 
uh, too, you know, too big to fail kind of became this almost norm in 2008. And, uh, you know, I just listened to a couple doom and gloom episodes of uh, Balaji talking about his, you know, million dollar hyperinflation Bitcoin bet. And um, it wasn't actually the Bitcoin bet that I think stood out. It was this concept of um, at some point in the future, Balaji thinks 90 days. I think that's a kind of wonky thought, but I agree with him that things usually happen faster and people's brains aren't, aren't built for exponential um, like unfoldings like that. But I do, but I think the interesting thing that he brought up is that at some point in the future, it could be 90 days, it could be nine years, it could be three years, the US is gonna have to decide between supporting the banking system and keeping the banking system up and supporting the US dollar. And 10 times out of 10, they're probably gonna choose the US banking system. So that then creates this kind of dark world where the global reserve currency is the US dollar, but the global reserve currency starts kind of running away from us. I'm curious how much you, like is that tinfoil hat, Balaji's crazy? Uh, like that's one end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum is like, look, he makes some really good points. I don't agree with the 90 days, but I really agree with him on some of these other aspects. Like where, where do you two fall? Yeah, it's tough to comment on that. Um, yeah, tinfoil hat angle at this stage. I mean, I think 90 days agree with you there. You know, it's it's uh, it's it would have to be parabolic. And I don't quite understand why you, if you have that view, why wouldn't you just buy just a bunch of Bitcoin rather than put a bet on that it's going to be a million dollars uh, in 90 days? Interesting nonetheless. Uh, I would say we are starting to see at least other trades being settled in non-dollar currencies, right? More recently, she, uh, China together with Mr. Mm -hmm. Mr. Putin talking about settlement in Yuan and other nations obviously looking for alternative uh, assets to use instead of the dollar as reserve. Even if you think about El Salvador's experiment with, with Bitcoin, there are signs that other nations are starting to move away from the dollar. So I don't think it's completely unreasonable to think that there might be a scenario where the dollar is no longer the global reserve currency. It's just tricky to predict in that kind of doomsday scenario unfolding, at, especially at that pace you suggested. I don't know if Amy's got more views on that, given your yeah, broader kind of. Yeah, I think it, it definitely, uh, you know, we're seeing some shifts there. I, I, I do think these uh, these dynamics typically take longer to play out than, than 90 days. Uh, you can see an evolution uh, in this. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that have to change. There's a lot of things like, you know, even countries that have baskets, uh, of currencies or pegs to U.S. dollars, so you know it's not just say a U.S. phenomenon. There's there's other impacts, broader impacts across the board, and I think that takes a little bit of time to play out. Even if you went down that path, uh, I think that the challenge that we're facing is like people's psyche right now. Like things to your to your point have have changed so quickly, right? I mean, even just think about COVID in the U.S. No the population never dealt with something like COVID, where basically overnight you're shut down, you're not going to work, everyone's fighting over toilet paper, everyone's trying to get food. I mean, that was quite chaotic. And it's coming from like the emerging market side, it was easy to stay calm and kind of just watch the chaos around you ensue. It was almost concerning to see that level of chaos. But I do think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can create, we continue to create some uh, find some trust in the system because I think there's there's that erosion of trust that continues to happen and um, uh, I, I really hope that doesn't start to slide further 
uh, than we are now. You know, I think that's also where we can even, uh, you know, weave in regulation. Uh, we, we need regulation to uh, work for us. We need it to help us. Uh, you know, you can't be putting S1s out where you're getting approved by certain agencies, but then, you know, further down the road, uh, having enforcement actions, like that's not going to put a lot of trust in, in, in mm -hmm. people's minds. And, um, and, and I do think we're working really hard here to try to build trust again, because that's, uh, that's going to be a big theme going forward here. Uh, Amy, I want to, uh, I think your experience in emerging markets um, is interesting. Like if you think about what happened in Silicon Valley Bank and perhaps other banks that are holding like these effectively bought a lot of treasuries that are at zero. And then there's been a huge, over the last year, there's been a big shift in interest rates. And that has big implications when you have this duration mismatch. Uh, the same could be true for some central banks that are holding a lot of treasuries. And they have obligations, the same way that a bank has. They have pensions, they have other stuff. So, you know, it's interesting, like Bitcoin's up 25% over the last, you know, I guess since this banking crisis kind of started. Um, and so I'm curious to get your thoughts, perhaps both of your thoughts, and what do you read into that? Um, does this make Bitcoin, you know, perhaps more compelling for a central bank, um, you know, to, to then hold? Um, and, and kind of dump treasuries. Like, I'm just sort of curious what your thoughts are um, on that. They were already researching it, right? There was a number of central banks that were out there researching it. Uh, there's many central banks out there that are also very actively investigating uh, central bank digital currencies. Like, they're doing their work. And, and, I, and I do give credit to, to select emerging markets that even in this current interest rate environment, they started really putting more orthodox policy in place ahead of even the US. So uh, again, I might be biased because clearly I live in, uh, uh, even though I live in the US, my, my entire world is around the emerging markets business, uh, but, but they've been taking some active approaches to try to manage things. So, you know, I do think, uh, I do think many of them are looking at this very carefully and, and some also see it as an opportunity for them. So I think it's something we just have to watch. I don't think there's any really clear themes that have emerged yet, uh, but you see the action out there and it's something to pay attention to. Yeah, and if I would just add to that, I think certainly, obviously Bitcoin was born out of the previous financial crisis and the, the whole reason of creation, if you look at the message in the, in the Genesis block was regarding bailouts of banks, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And 15 years later, we were in that kind of what seems like very similar, maybe not exactly the same, but certainly has echoes of that time, right? And mm -hmm. it's frankly encouraging to see Bitcoin performing in this environment. And it's clearly a decoupling from the previous regime. I think if you anything as a trader, you always think about was there a re regime change? And obviously, Bitcoin's had multiple narratives over the years. It's been flagged as an inflation hedge, which potentially didn't play out. We've had the likes of Paul Tudor Jones uh, jump on the monetary supply, to calling it the fastest horse in a kind of expansionary monetary environment, which I think maintains like credibility to a large extent. Uh, but of course, like last year and throughout the end of, from frankly, the end of 21, it was highly correlated with tech growth equity and just almost intraday mirroring the NASDAQ in terms of the price performance. Now, part of me thinks like, is that the fault of TradFi or institutional players, if you will, like larger macro funds, the like quantitative funds coming into the market and 
flagging it as one of these assets and putting it into their model, especially given like how how much it was correlated intraday. But these narratives uh, have changed over time, and yeah, as mentioned, the regime change is what's very interesting. And I feel like the current market environment, with signs of 2008, Bitcoin outperforming. Uh, it's doing what it frankly should be doing in this environment. And it's one of the most important rallies I think we've seen since 2021. Yeah. That's not a house view, by the way. Our house view is very different. And this is, <laughs> this is personal view. Our house view is certainly much around correlation to the M2 money supply. M2 money supply. So we do have in-house research, mm-hmm. which called it pretty early, I would say, in terms of expansionary monetary policy being supportive for Bitcoin. I feel like what we've seen recently is, is, is also... Uh, fiscal or let's say monetary instability or concern around the monetary supply also impacting Bitcoin pretty positively. And frankly, it's interesting because personally being in crypto for some for some time, talking to colleagues and other traders about it, back in the early, like 10 years ago, it's rather more like everything was crypto native, like crypto specific, idiosyncratic about protocols, new launches, tokens, now it feels like you've got to be into macro and thinking about money supply and thinking about indices as, as a crypto guy. <laughs> so it's interesting to see the two worlds kind of merge and impact each other. Andrew, can you take us inside Morgan Stanley's view, I guess, current views on, on crypto and, and Bitcoin and ETH, but also just, I mean, you've been pushing for Bitcoin even since when you were a derivatives trader in 2013, all the way up to joining Morgan Stanley in 2018, really pushing for it. And I think there have been these like ebbs and flows from our conversations over the last five years of Morgan Stanley being very pro crypto, then, you know, pulling back, being pro, pulling back. So can you just give us kind of the evolution of of Morgan Stanley's crypto strategy and and ending with where we're at today? Okay, sure. I mean, I I can talk about everything in terms of what we've publicly been involved in. I would say we're we're obviously a client-focused firm. We want to be present to service client needs. And initially thinking through the launch of the futures in 2018, so CME and CBOE at the time, thinking which clients are interested in, in trading these. And there certainly was a list of clients which were interested in, in trading those products. But typically what we do for any other future in the market is to put a wrap around it and have total return swap. And that gives us some flexibility to offer a potentially different like contract sizes, for example, or other liquidity around around the asset class. And those types of uh, swaps are also on top of like individual equities, but also on top of like commodities, futures, agriculture, other other types of topics, other types of uh, underlyings. And I personally had been spent time as a, as a commodities uh, derivatives trader in the past with positions on corn and wheat and and coffee and those things are way more volatile than bitcoin and frankly physical settlement is far more difficult than bitcoin but bitcoin always comes with this because it's a bit of a new asset it's certainly a new asset class even though it's been around for obviously over now 15 like 14 years still there's like this level of concern around it due to some of the initial press in the in the first place and of course, the regulatory environment. So I think at the time with the total return swaps, thinking about non-deliverable forwards, there's some element of FCA in the UK looking to ban the sale of derivatives to retail investors, for example. 
Now, as a highly regulated institution, the last thing we want to do is find a way to, you know, circumvent or let's say facilitate a market which the major major regu regulator uh, is looking to put into some level of control. So those types of products have were on hold at the time. I mean, in the meantime, given the, the conversation has evolved recently uh, in terms of tokenization, I think we always had the view that this is something to monitor and, and look at. And as I mentioned, like client coverage, certainly a lot of clients have been interested over the last few years around tokenization or like exchange initiatives. So I've spent time looking at those types of initiatives in a, in a big crypto bear market 2019, for example. And then when crypto 2020, when you start to see the likes of Paul Tudor Jones's piece, macro, and I mentioned that earlier, but some more macro focus, institutional focus, like these, these topics then make clients interested and these pieces are quite influential. And when if clients are calling and looking to get more knowledge about this space, then we can start to think about, okay, well, how can we potentially like serve those clients? So we've, we've spun up full-time research department. Sheena Shah has published a number of pieces now around Bitcoin and crypto. Like Amy and I have both spent multiple hours speaking to some of our larger clients, just in terms of education, but also thinking through like, how can we work together? Uh, we've spent time thinking through alternative offerings, but in addition to the way, you know, this market is extremely cyclical, I would say significant larger client interest, which is what we would need to like move the needle in terms of a new business opportunity is also massively cyclical. And, and other initiatives which we have been working on, which we haven't necessarily been publicly announced with, um, have been put on hold. We did spend, we were the first like platform in wealth management to offer Bitcoin funds. So we offer two funds on the wealth management platform, long only kind of structures just to get for clients to get exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, anything else to add there, Amy? Yeah. Uh only thing to add is there's continue there's continued activity. Uh, I you know I think even at permissionless last year when I uh, was on a panel there. I mean at that point we were dealing with uh, the Terra Luna collapse, and I had made a comment saying like it's not going to stop anything uh, in terms of traditional players who are. Uh, institutional interest. It, it slows, but it evolves. And, and as we've seen cycles uh, just get shorter and faster, uh, I feel like we, we get uh, you know, a month or two to catch our breath and then we're off to the next opportunity. I mean, by October of last year, even though we're dealing with FTX on one side, to Andrew's point, asset tokenization has really taken off with a uh, you know, pretty significant level of activity. Many of uh, our different uh, uh, competitors across the space launching or announcing different products. So uh, the activities continued, and and it's one of the reasons uh, that even Andrew Andrew's been sitting in sales and trading since he joined Morgan Stanley, and uh, official uh, as of just recently has come over to the investment management side to really help us look at the opportunities. Because uh, to Andrew's point on helping clients. It's very complicated, even for all of us that have been in the space, we know how difficult it is uh, to navigate uh, all the different areas, the complexities, how quickly it changes. Uh, and, and you really do need uh, experts that are helping you navigate the space. I think it's very helpful and the clients see that. 
so, you know, we'll continue to to take advantage of some of those opportunities. Education, a big one right up front. And it's not only education for clients, as uh, as Andrew highlighted, uh, but we need to upskill a lot of workers also on our side. Uh, lawyers, fund administrators, product development, operations, uh, you know, different investors. And, and, it, and that's especially as you see, I mean, I see it across the board, even within our different portfolios. Uh, we have numerous companies that, uh, although it's small, are being impacted by uh, everything from chip manufacturers and how that uh, trend is, is Im- impacting, you know, Bitcoin mining um, or other trends that you're seeing play out, similar to some of our consumer brand companies. Um, we've seen Nike, Adidas, luxury brands all roll out uh, NFT initiatives. Uh, we need to really get people up to speed so they're re- generally aware of, of what this is, what the impact is to business models and so forth. So, you know, I would say there's, there's a, lot, a lot that uh, continues to go on in the background. Mm-hmm. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no Gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. So I want to transition a bit into kind of the regulatory clampdown. Uh, there's always been regulatory worries that we've had over the last, you know, since the existence of crypto. This time feels much more coordinated and really all out attack uh, in the US. Um, you know, we've had signature, basically, it's really hard now. They There's a major choke point at the on-ramps, right? You you no longer have the SEN network of, of Silvergate. Um, Silvergate's no longer in existence, you know, and uh, signature, this crypto business kind of got, was shut down pretty quickly. Um other banks are kind of refusing or shutting down their crypto practices. I'm curious if you could just comment on on that and how you guys think internally about servicing the crypto industry um, and the opportunities there um, in the face of all this kind of regulatory action. It, 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 so I was in D.C. this week. I went to the D.C. blockchain summit and 
You know, it, it's really a tough space right now. I think it's a priority of ours to really dig into this policy side much more than we ever had before. You know, I think historically my 20 plus years in financial services, I can't say that I was going down to DC on a regular basis to try to understand what the heck is going on. Um, there was a lot of other things for us to focus on and we'd focus on macro initiatives, but you know, you're really trying to get a handle on like what, like what is the reason for some of this? Who has, uh, uh, is moving in the right direction? And there was some positive elements that came out of the the blockchain summit. Like you felt that there was some working groups and and um, different activities happening. Uh, I I just it's hard to 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 see the discussion and the working groups. Uh, and where the execution is. So I guess the question is like, where is the execution uh, on it? If it's, if it's, you know, clamping down on crypto, but like, okay, forget, like, just say like crypto or DeFi, like, let's just like take the idea that they really are doing that. But what about just digitization and innovation in general? Like we have to move in terms of the future infrastructure of finance, like everyone's digitized. We shop online 24-7. We make plans with our friends 24-7. We text our friends 24-7. We can't get access to our money 24-7. Like there's something there that has to uh, to change uh, or even, you know, wires, like the number of people that sat with wires with like, you know, spinning to, to see if it would get delivered or not. There's tons of wire fraud. There has to be, you know, more advanced ways of, of uh, putting this infrastructure in place. And, and I think even if you just like set crypto aside for whatever it's worth, we need to keep moving on the, the uh, future of uh, financial infrastructure here. Andrew, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I can't comment like specifically on this concept of kind of choke point and regulate or like clamp down on the various on and off ramps. Um, mm -hmm. Just not having firsthand experience of it. It's just probably it can say the same as everyone's seen in the public press. I, I would say it's a big shame to think that such a relatively innovative like offering such as Send, uh, Send Network or the, the SIG Network is, is no longer available because those was pretty critical to obviously crypto traders and the whole liquidity of, of crypto. And if you look at like the market depth since that has been switched off, I mean, we're, we're down to like, 50% market depth it only takes like 5,000 BTC or like $140 million to move the spot price by 2%. I mean, that's like half the amount of liquidity or half the amount of uh, volume that was needed prior to the FTX collapse, for example, and even just prior to this clampdown recently on dollar on and off ramps. So it's clearly got a significant impact on the market structure for crypto. Mm -hmm. I'm based in Switzerland, in Zurich, and would say it's certainly been a topic here for new banks, new digital banks to get licenses and to get approval. And if anything, there's been some level of growth in the in the local banks that have got FINMA regulated and FINMA licenses to offer banking services. There's quite a number of banks here that do offer liquidity for crypto players and are prepared to onboard crypto players. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, it's harder to comment on the U.S. scenario. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, one of you is based in Switzerland, the other in the U.S. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, you can't really stop this industry. I mean, China's basically tried to shut it down for since forever. India and some other countries, um, you know, 
of course, if the U.S. were, it feels like it's much more impactful for the industry. But still, a lot of these entrepreneurs are going elsewhere. I mean, Zug, or like they're going to Switzerland, they're going to London, they're going to other places. Like a gold ETF got approved in London, while U.S. regulators were really against it. And then once it got approved in London, then the U.S. regulators were on board. Like, is that going to happen in crypto as well? Where, like, you know, from your perspective, the interest from clients and corporations are going to, it doesn't feel like it's stopped um, mm-hmm. on different verticals, of course, like NFTs and whatnot. But, you know, what does that actually mean for the competitiveness of the US, US banks, US companies versus others um, as they try to kind of take, you know, opportunities in, in the space? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's one of the most mobile industries globally i would say crypto everything online young like motivated flexible you know talent pool and and workforce that's just able to relocate and motive and move themselves to other countries be it middle east asia switzerland london i mean it's pretty easy and we've seen that multiple times even if you look at like the major exchanges just going to areas where they're accommodative and that can be done overnight in some cases. So I do think it's a it's a very difficult industry to to say we're going to patch this hole and you know this this is going away. It's not going away anywhere. This industry moves and is extremely mobile very quickly to go to other places where the environment's more accommodative. I mean, Amy, you've seen a lot in in, in Middle East, I guess, recently. Yeah, I think the same migration patterns. You know, we we saw during COVID. Uh, Folks move from you know New York or San Francisco and, and places like Austin and South Florida, just continuing to see uh, more and more of the population move. But I think you know that's a trend more globally. Also, I mean Hong Kong's been a very very difficult place to get to the last three years. Uh, that's been a business hub historically. London dealing with its own challenges. Uh, with Brexit making it more complicated, lots of protests going on there. Uh, you, you hear pain points of people, you know, hating to go through that airport or rail um, um, rail strikes and everything else. And then you have places like Dubai who are taking advantage of the opportunity, or UAE more broadly, or, or Saudi Arabia, saying, you know, we're open for business, uh, we're focused on innovation, we have a clear plan. Uh, they've made it more lax in order to even get visas. And, and, and that's a big game changer. I mean, even for someone that runs a global business, it's been harder to get visas uh, over the last number of years in the U.S. for talent. And our talent is very global. We have teams that sit in six uh, cities around the world. And, uh, and we continue to just accept that we're operating like that and it works, uh, it, it works very well. And, and it allows us to really tap into talent uh, all over the world. So it, it, it is... Uh, it's it's a broader uh, trend and and it very much is supportive of the digital asset space. I mean, Andrew, what is the um, does, do you find that Bitcoin or uh, or ETH resonates more with institutional clients right now? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. I think like I don't know. ETH ETH is maybe of interest given the additional like tech angle in terms of people thinking through all the on-chain activity, right? So that and the, the fact that you can buy it and stake it and you know earn a yield adds another level of potential understanding or interest for players, which a number of our clients obviously are, are very sophisticated in terms of their technical abilities, uh, some of the world's largest quant funds, et cetera. 
but I do feel like very different asset class. I think macro is probably more interested in in the kind of Bitcoin thesis and the you know the play on what we've talked about with interest rates or monetary supply, whereas some of the maybe more technical players are thinking about on-chain trading and on-chain activity. Um, yeah, I would further. agree. With, oh, I was just going to say I would agree with that. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back and forth. Uh, you know, there was a moment last year where it felt like the theme was, you know, beyond Bitcoin. Like, okay, I got the Bitcoin. Let me like now explain everything else uh, that's happening uh, in this space. So it does tend to go back and forth. But I think we're back. We're back to Bitcoin right now. Yeah. Take, taking off your Morgan Stanley caps for a second. What, what do you two find more interesting? I think it's fascinating now with like the ramp up of the L2 solutions, right? We just saw the Arbitrum airdrop. Mm-hmm. We've got Optimism, ZK Syncs, Starkware, all that kind of scalability, which is coming to the space, like derivatives and on-chain options trading. Like that, if the tech is continues to advance at this kind of pace that it, we've seen in the last couple of years, like the ability to absorb some like traditional market activity on-chain is just fascinating, right? And for me, previously thinking through like the amount of systems I had to have like reconciling with each other and like multiple different platforms for quoting, trading, issuing, booking, reconciling. Like if you have everything on chain in an open kind of API format issuance and and trading and settlement, uh, it's just massively constructive and efficient in many ways just to be able to operate a trading operation. Yeah, and I would say I would say on my side, uh, you know, trying to continue to see trends to get a bit more pure. Uh, so we're not, you know, we don't have these bridges kind of going back and forth between traditional finance and the the digital asset space. Uh, you know, I love to see trends where you see different funds uh, where you're actually subscriptions are not coming in fiat or. Uh, you know, through different uh, on ramps, but uh, wallet to the wallet of the fund, smart contracts executing on those subscriptions. So really getting, or even uh, in the tokenization side, we need digitally native uh, investments that are going into tokenized funds. Uh, I'm not a big fan of kind of merging the two together where you're taking a traditional fund and then say tokenizing it. I'd like to continue to, see the evolution of a, a more purist approach from you know front to back. On this point of infrastructure, um, like where do you think we are in terms of the development of tools that large like quant funds or institutional players that want to get involved in crypto, they come to space and say, hey, it's really bare bones? Or do you think, I mean, where are we in terms of that development process? I mean, custody and exchange is bundled into one that feels like it needs to be separated. There's a number of things that probably haven't been built, but that could be an opportunity for someone like you guys to pick up the pieces of build another send network or whatnot. So I'm curious, how easy is it for your institutional clients to get involved in crypto and, and how that's changed over time? In terms of like, like the broader development, right? We're super early. I mean, looking at DeFi summer and the various different bumps in DeFi in 2021, et cetera, and personally active in some of those areas uh, for experimenting and for like liquidity provision, like you, you're like, it's either the chain getting clogged or going down or the browser extension having issues or your like your hardware wallet, uh, given like less sophisticated infrastructure on, on, on personal side, not working with the browser extension or et cetera, like it's, it's super early. 
obviously there's some of the larger market makers, be it the crypto native market makers or some of the Chicago prop shops, which have got like sophisticated tools to access some of that liquidity have, have got more robust infrastructure to engage than, than your standard like user. But even so, it, like the on-chain activity getting clogged and some of the some of the larger blockchains like Solana potentially going down for hours or, or sometimes afternoons on end, uh, that feels super early. But the pace of development, like the speed at which this these things get patched and fixed, the speed at which like uh, assets like migrate to new platforms or they find like new opportunities is just like phenomenal. So 24/7 markets, three times like your traditional market opening hours. I would say it's for like five to ten times, if not more, like the speed of development which which we're operating at now in in, in the crypto industry. Yeah, I, I would just add like we, we continue to need just more service providers and uh, that survive, right? I think a lot of times the discussion is like who's the winner, who's the best. We need multiple uh, service providers that are great at doing things. And, and that's when you get really a mature market because there's always conflicts. I mean, even if you look uh, at our business, the number of counterparties, the number of brokers we deal with in, in various markets across the board, uh, you really need more than one. One is not a mature market. One has a lot of risk. And, and I think we need to continue to, uh, to build that out and be comfortable that there needs to be numerous players. I think the second thing is just in terms of scalability, uh, when we get into our business, like the number of trades, uh, the size that we're putting through, it can be quite considerable. And if we really want to move into more of a mainstream, we, we need to, I mean, to Andrew's point about things going down, uh, we, we really need redundancy. We need that scalability to be much better than it is today. Yeah. I want to transition a little bit into kind of the evolution of your perspective and also institutional clients perspective of the space and sentiment broadly, like what is something that you've really changed your mind on as it relates to crypto that you were really against, or you were really like wooden headed about. And then like, you were like, Oh, wow. Like I've changed my perspective on that pretty radically. Uh, for me, for me, it's ETFs for sure. Uh, you know, I think maybe coming from the EM space, you know, living through Russia, Ukraine, uh, you know, I've always been pretty vocal, like you need to be able to hold your Bitcoin uh, ETF is not going to um, provide you much service. If, uh, you know, the traditional finance space goes down, that you'll have that value to uh, deliver. Uh, but I think that we're living in an environment now where the user experience is, is still so difficult. We do need uh, to help clients, at least in this interim, uh, be able to have access, even if it's price access price exposure to a certain extent as that evolves. So for me, that's probably a big one. I've accepted that ETFs potentially are part of our future. That's a good one. Cause I think like the industry has been so fixated on ETFs for as long as I can remember, like even the, the Winklevoss application in 2015 or 16 was like a major market topic. Um, for me personally, I think change the view in like how much DeFi will interact with the traditional financial in, in, in system. I think it's fascinating to watch the likes of MakerDAO being you know, with probably the largest out there in AUM. Do you got you guys probably know that definitely better than me? But starting to see them investing in like bond portfolios via more crypto native banks, like one of our local banks here, Signum offers MakerDAO the access to 
bond funds. So you're taking like pool of capital, which is one of the most like purely crypto native pools of capital, and it's allocating like half a billion into bonds. So that bridge between DeFi, which is like was previously in this kind of almost crypto echo chamber where they're just buying like crypto assets to try and keep the peg if they die to one dollar. Um, taking that and buying now traditional instruments through like regulated institutions. Andrew, does do you think that is the end state though? Or is the end state that the actual bonds originate on-chain? And that like we're because it does feel like we're kind of living in this in-between state where like on-chain world is trying to connect to the off-chain world. Yeah. Um, but then you kind of mismatch liquidity a little bit. I don't know. I'm curious to get your take on, on if you yeah. think that's the end state. No, I, I, I definitely don't think it's the end state. Like, I think you're right. Like, we are like bridging the two worlds just to, at the moment, because frankly, the old world's far like less efficient than the new world. And there's some bridges at the, there at the moment, which probably go away. Like one, once regulations change and maybe you've got some changes to infrastructure due to like CBDCs, maybe some additional changes to regulation to allow like the record of holder or like the actual transfer, legal transfer of value of a traditional security to be the blockchain transaction. Then you start to leverage far more like synergies with like bonds natively issued on chain and the transfer itself being like legally binding. And that can open up a whole world of new financial innovation. But prior to the, prior to change in regulation and prior to change of like the old guard or the legacy institutions managing these types of assets there has to be this kind of bridge between the two worlds mm -hmm. what do you guys think i mean the way that this uh, kind of DeFi is now interfacing with traditional finance like what do you think where do you think we go from here in in terms of that developing well i think we see a permission DeFi environment and in the sense of like you have i mean the coinbase like base l2 is pretty interesting because i think it's going to provide a hand-holding experience for you know, to, to kind of enter this world. Um, and, but you KYC the wallet, right? And like they're doing the KYC at the on-ramp level. So it's a natural extension that they'll issue you an NFT that then represents a physical entity or person. And then, and then you know your counterparty. And then once you're provisioning liquidity and doing all these things and on chain, it's all well and good because you know your counterparty. And then at that point, I think regulators like it. And then also it sort of fits into that mold which feels to me like the biggest bottleneck, which was a question for you guys, which is why haven't more funds or people really experimented with DeFi? I mean, when I was at Parify, we were looking at a super fascinated DeFi before it was even a term. Um, and then it felt like it was only like crypto degens that really liked this stuff. But a lot of institutions believed in like, hey, we love smart contracts. It could minimize counterparty risk. Like the predictability of the execution is really interesting. Oracles can be also interesting and that infrastructure has come a long way, but DeFi has been so out of favor. And I wonder if purely it's because of regulation. Um, and so for that reason, I think that it's a permission DeFi environment, like compound was experimenting with this, but it's gone nowhere. Aave as well with Arc. Mm. But I just think now it's probably Coinbase is going to deliver on that promise. I don't know, Jason, what do you think? I think that um, money will eventually flow where the liquidity is, but you can't have liquidity until the products are actually good enough. So like, I think a Andrew brought up a really interesting point like 30 minutes ago about, I mean, a Andrew, you traded derivatives 
in an mm-hmm. off-chain world and you can't really trade amazing derivatives on chain, but but eventually you will be able to. Um, and eventually, the, there will be new products that o- can only exist in an on-chain world. And I think that just takes a long time. Um, but hope, but hopefully, it gets sped up by an administration and and regulators that are supportive of a, of a fully of a like an open and transparent financial system uh, instead of what's happening now. I think one of the challenges with with that, even if we get support. Uh, from the regulatory side, one of the things I keep observing is, you know, how is that executed? Because even if we can, uh, you, you go through and highlight a number of use cases, like even for regulators or oversight, uh, there's some opportunities where you can have more real-time dashboards, where you can be able to see metrics and, you know, have different parties plug into that pretty easily than, you know, some of the just burdensome administration uh, issues that we deal with now, but I guess it's you know you're you're almost in a state where you're trying to rebuild the New York subway system under New York City. You know h- how do you actually do that, and and what sort of initiatives does it take, even from a regulatory regulatory front, to get that done? So I think that execution piece, even if we get clarity, is is going to you know be super important. Yeah, I guess I'd like the eye opening moment for me was Curve where there was no reason for you to trade a stable coin in any centralized exchange because it was far more efficient to do it in size and curve. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of critics of like, you know, DEXs were like, why would you ever use a DEX? Like just use a centralized order book model. Like none of this is going to work. And then, oh, all of a sudden it did work. And I guess the challenge we're thinking of how DeFi is going to work. And when you talk to people, the value proposition of DeFi, everyone is comparing it to traditional finance. And it's like, well, there's composability. There's other elements. It's not to say that we're going to do one for one mirror what's to your point around infrastructure. Maybe you're not building the same blueprint of that subway system. Maybe you're creating some other rail mm-hmm. and might might be different, just a different method of transportation. Now, this is not to say that people, people sure. are still going to use a subway. I think you're not going to blow that up, but uh, it's funny now because a lot of the criticism of DeFi was capital efficiency. It's like you're over collateralized. The world just doesn't work this way. It's super inefficient. Let's try to figure out how to do under collateralized. And here we are in a state of the world where all these (laughs) banks are kind of facing what I think is just a transparency issue because that's what builds confidence. I think if you if banks were to see that maybe in five years time, we're going to look it back and say, Hey, it would be kind of really nice to understand in real time the position of these banks. Maybe or maybe not. Maybe the obfuscation is by design <laughs> so that these bank runs don't happen. Um, I don't know. I think it's also trying to understand like what are the additional risks that we need uh, or or management we need to build out with that transparency. So now I can talk a little bit about this in the world we're living in with active ETFs. So one of the things that's continuing to pick up speed across the financial industry is the evolution from passive ETFs to active ETFs, but active ETFs have uh, full transparency. And it's a very different way that investors have to manage products because you're putting out your holdings every day in terms of what that is. And, and that creates opportunities for others to potentially trade around you, to get in trickier situations with more liquid positions and, um, you know, I do think that there's just an a, additional layer of, of risk management that we just have to understand, like, what are the risks? And, you know, Santiago, to your point, so 
maybe it's a scooter system, you know, that or a different, uh, you know, mechanism to get around that city. Uh, but then it's, you know, what's the other implications of that? So it, it is, uh, there's just some like second and third degree implications that we need to continue to think about and uh, kind of get more people brainstorming and, and be visionaries around that. Yeah. And going back to your point, you know, about curve Santiago, right? That's, that, that's to me super important because you solve there for the user experience, right? It's, if something's far more efficient and easy to use, then that's where people activity will, will navigate. This whole concept of like, let's use blockchain for an initiative or let's like use this technology for something we think is, is useful, not necessarily works. I think it's far more like solving for the user experience first and then choosing the right tech or essentially the right impl implication of it. Yeah. In my opinion, like some of these initiatives which we've seen like over the years and let's say we've been we've think we've heard headlines about tokenization of various different securities from multiple people over the years most of which have gone live but then the liquidity has not been there or there's just been a headline about an issuance and then not necessarily like any follow-on activity and i personally think like this is mainly because implementing a blockchain issuance alongside like legacy infrastructure where it's like just another system that reconciles with a bunch of other systems it doesn't make it any more efficient doesn't necessarily immediately offer any like commercial activity or any kind of additional functionality it's really hard to see like the value case at the moment like you re it costs something to build it's another point of potential failure it's expensive it takes resources new skills like it's not an immediate obvious commercial benefit but then at the same time like over time let's say all of the parts of the system get upgraded like front to back issuance trading settlement like we start to see funds other assets like trade like stable coins do currently or like bitcoin and eth do currently and then you start to like see some of that benefit but it's really got to be the whole value chain which gets adjusted to to leverage those efficiencies is it fair to say that the the tokenization, like the new issuance of instruments like bonds or whatever on chain brings a lot of liquidity and that's like the most impactful thing towards this transition? Or is there something else in your mind that moves us closer to that kind of direction where everything kind of operates in this kind of you revamp the digital infrastructure of the financial system? Like, like, I, said, I, th like I said, I think it's, it's, it has to be like far more technical ability and development across the entire value system, like of all parties involved. So you got like two institutions that trade frequently versus each other. One issues a bond, one trades the bond, one settles. And, you know, the, there's this loop and there's a venue which supports the same standard for the token that the one issued and the one bought. And there's a settlement to be able to like transfer like value that's trusted, be it a CBDC, or another kind of private potential stablecoin, which has been trusted and regulated. And of course the regulatory environment, right? So it's got to be ramped up across the whole value chain. There's got to be the ability to settle on chain. And then the whole process has got to be approved from regulators before I feel like all of the efficiencies there are, le are leveraged. Like everything we've seen so far is super interesting. Don't get me wrong. There's been some amazing experimentation across various different uh, peers of ours and clients of ours and, and counterparties of ours at different exchanges. 
but all of it's largely currently developing abilities to be able to get to a future state, which I don't think the path is necessarily super clear or immediately obvious. And on my end, I think you know financial inclusion continues to be a major focus of mine. I think part of this asset tokenization is to continue to have access to products that weren't always accessible to a broader set of the population. Uh, but we really need to see that play out. Even some of the uh, opportunities that have come to market so far, they're doing it still pretty uh, specific in a quali qualified purchaser level. Uh, it's not really getting down to those that don't have access to the market at this point. And, the, and I think even some of the projects that have allowed that to happen, it really needs a more vibrant secondary market and a proper distribution initiative. Uh, you know, we don't really have that to date. I think some of the projects that have come out, there's just no liquidity in it. So you, you really need a, a more um, vibrant distribution and, and secondary market to evolve. I wanna to try to tie this conversation back to the conversation at the very beginning of the podcast, as we, as we start to think about wrapping this up. Do you two think that it's more likely that uh, crypto gets, you know, quotes around this, like mass adoption or whatever, you know, word, word we want to put around this by the products being better? That would almost be like the Ethereum route. DeFi gets built. DeFi ends up being better than the traditional capital market system. Does mass adoption happen that way? Or does mass adoption happen by almost like forced adoption, which I might call like the Bitcoin route, which is banking crisis, emerging markets blowing up inflation around the world, something like that. And people are forced to move into a safer asset, which in this case might be Bitcoin. What, what's the more likely scenario here? I think there's potential for, for both. So even if you take the evolution of ETFs, uh, so in early 2000s, there was only a handful of them. They weren't very popular. Many people were against them that they'd even be successful. And the real J-curve for ETF adoption happened around the global financial crisis. If you go and look at some of the data, uh, I think that's a combination both of, of having better products, but then also having a catalyst that helped drive uh, individuals into those better products. So, so I do think there's a, a combination of both of those things that need to happen. Andrew, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. No, I think I totally agree. And like there's, there's different levels of interest, obviously, macro topic around Bitcoin, as, as mentioned earlier, like very important rally happening, um, raising the awareness of Bitcoin in times of financial market uncertainty. Uh, and certainly that attention is not going away in my view. And typically we see when Bitcoin does its thing and starts to go on a run and we have one of those massive face melting rallies in BTC, like the amount of people clamoring after it and talking about it chasing the price can be highly uh, impactful on on its broader adoption um, and then at the same time like i do think solving for like inefficiencies in the existing system for you know for be it providing like on-chain DAOs or other like pools of liquidity access to tradfi in more you know efficient ways or trading firms and prop shops that are highly technical building infrastructure to be able to trade on tr on chain and, and settle on chain and providing products which are only possible when you've got like a shared ledger, like also super interesting. I think you start to see both evolving. I think the tech angle for me personally is like the one 
more likely like it's nearly every major exchange globally, nearly every major custodian globally, nearly every major asset manager and trading house has got some level of involvement in, in this space, developing proof of concepts or yeah. activity to like leverage what's, what's happening in the digital asset ecosystem. Yeah. Do you think we could see a world where either one of the major exchanges like a Kraken or a Coinbase acquires a, let's call it a top 20 bank or, or vice versa, where a, you know, top 20, a, someone like a Morgan Stanley or a JP or a Wells or B of A or something like that acquires or tries to acquire a Coinbase or a Kraken or something like that. I'm not sure. I mean, if, you know, if this is going back quite a while, but you know, when, uh, Clubhouse had just started. I know Jesse from Kraken was uh, on, you know, one of the rooms, and someone had asked him, you know, you have enough cash on hand to buy Wells Fargo, uh, would you do it? And, and and he made the point that like the cultures don't fit, and 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 I would agree with that. I think it would be a really hard acquisition. I've lived through many acquisitions, even of traditional finance to traditional finance or fintech firms. It's hard. And, and I do think that that, uh, that acquisition would be a pretty difficult one, especially if you have such an established culture like a Coinbase or a Kraken to pair with a traditional finance house. Awesome. Amy and, Amy and Andrew, this has been great. Um, any other big things that you guys are thinking about? Any, anything else that you guys want to discuss here? Yeah, we just remain close to this space and thinking what, what's what's the future and staying close to understand how we can be relevant in the space. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation and would love to discuss some of those topics again with you guys. Cool. Yeah, and I think continued opportunity here, you know, even uh, in the early era of, uh, you know, carrying around a Palm Pilot at one point, none of us could see that the iPhone was five years ahead. Uh, and, and I think we're, we're living through an environment like that again, like some of the products that we, we get excited about now um, potentially will die for a, a more advanced, more complex uh, opportunity down the road. And I think that's super exciting to think about what that might be. That's such a great point. I, I had a Palm Pilot. I was super excited about it then. I thought it was the best thing ever. And then the <laughs> smartphone came along. So if you're excited about like how basic these things are, like I think the core principles of, of permit yeah. composability, permissionless immutability are really cool. So it's really encouraging to, to get your perspective and in fact, everything that's going on and see how guys, you know, how excited you guys are and putting the resources behind it. So thanks so much for coming on and we'd definitely love to have you on again uh, later down the road as things evolve, which I'm sure they will pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy.